Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. So glad to have you here with us today for episode 401. Yes, that's right. We've uh, passed the 400 mark uh, here at the Speaker Lab podcast. We are so glad that you're joining us and glad you've been with us on this journey. Now, uh, today we're going to be continuing our series, uh, 40 Speaking Lessons from 400 Episodes. And today I'm excited to take a look back into the vault at some of our standout conversations that we've had with guests on the show. Now, there's no doubt that it takes grit and dedication and grace to make a place for yourself in the speaking industry. And so each of the lessons that are shared by our guests are rooted in years and years of experience and their desire to raise up a strong generation of speakers. So before we get to it, remember that during this series, we want to give you a chance to get a free copy of my book, The Successful Speaker. It is a phenomenal resource that's going to walk you through the exact steps that you need to take in order to have a successful speaking career. So here's the deal. If you go to thespeakerlab.com slash free book, again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash free book, enter your info. We're going to randomly pick 40 of you, mail you a free copy. It is that easy. Again, head over to thespeakerlab.com slash free book to get started. All right. I know you're going to love this episode and these next 10 lessons. So here's episode 401 of the Speaker Lab podcast. Enjoy. One of the most important things a speaker needs to realize is the amount of work that takes place before you're actually on stage. No matter your background, previous experience, or goals for building a business, Jason Hewlett reminds us, lesson 11, that the best way to sell yourself is to get on stage. So you decide to, to make a run at it as a speaker, but to your point, you mentioned that it felt like you were starting over. I built this huge business as an entertainer, all these, I have all these relationships and these clients, they don't necessarily take me seriously as a speaker or they don't feel like maybe I'm, you know, Jason, we want to keep working with you, but like, why don't you stay over there and the, the bounce house that you've created. And I don't know that we have a, a fit for you over here. So like, how do you overcome that? How do you like if people, I say that not just from an entertainment to a, a speaker transition, but I know of other speakers who have said, okay, I speak to I talked to a speaker recently who said, I, I speak primarily to colleges and I'm making the, the transition to corporate and it's just hard to be taken seriously. And I've been pigeonholed in this role and now I'm trying to go to that role. And so trying to make that segue. So what did that process look like for you? Okay, so I talked with a guy recently that's doing the exact same thing. The advice that I told him from the colleges to the corporate was I said, if they can't pay you, you need to go in there and just prove that you're good. You need to capture the footage. You need to start from scratch. Go do an afternoon if they won't give you the evening slot. Go do a training meeting if they're not going to give you the main stage at their event. Do whatever it takes to get in front of people. If you're actually good, you will eventually make this work. And I, I swear to you, Grant, that is what I have done. 
I have gone into these businesses and said to them, even my old clients who loved me and hired me 10 times as the entertainer and 10 times as the MC. And I'd say, I'm going to come speak. And they'd go, <laughs> loser, you know, and I'd say, just bring me in. So then I said, let me do your afternoon leadership meeting on a Monday. All you're losing is 45 minutes if I stink. And then I, I, I swear to you, this just has happened in the last two years. I went in, did the leadership meeting. They flipped out. I came in, did the manager's meeting. They flipped out. I did all these for free. They had paid me in the past. So yeah. it was okay for me to say, I'm giving back. Now, I, I swear to you, two days ago, they called and said, we want you as our opening keynote speaker for the kickoff. We have your full fee. We're so excited to have you. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've just recreated what I did as an entertainer. Yeah. All I had to do is get in front of them. Because I, I tell you, as important as video is, that's not going to convince any of my clients to have me. I create something that has to be experienced. It just does. I don't say it well on a video. It doesn't come across. We're yeah. still trying. But you get me in a room, I'll create electricity and energy that they'll be like, what do we do next time? In fact, I had a client the other day that after I had done the event, they said, we're either going to cancel next year or we need you back. And I was like, man, that's as a keynoter. Yeah. Like, how did this happen? That's just called grunt hard work. That's all it is. When Ann Hanley joined us on the show, she reminded listeners that the thing that is your voice makes you, you. Therefore, you have to remember that it takes time and commitment to your craft. You also have to develop your voice. So here's more on that in lesson 12. I think, you know, knowing you, I could obviously hear your voice so strong in the book. I imagine people say that to you as well, just like your stage and your real life persona are the same. I see that same voice and I hear that same voice when I'm reading. Is, is there something we can do to kind of develop that voice that, you know, that strong sense of your own voice? I think as writers, maybe it's a little more taught for us than maybe someone who didn't take that path. Yeah, because you have a background as a journalist too, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I do think that you can develop a voice and I think everybody does develop a voice. I don't think it's actually natural for anybody. I think that some of us have just been doing it for so long that maybe we've forgotten when we didn't have a voice or it feels more natural. But, you know, I think of it as it's almost like a like a tell like in in poker a tell is a signal that one player will either consciously or unconsciously give another player and the other players around the table can can sort of read that motion or that or that you know that arch of the eyebrow or the way that they <laughs> hold their hand or their way that their eyes shift or whatever like those are tells in poker that signal something to the other players around the table sometimes in a negative way or often in a negative way but I think of a tell in terms of writing and in terms of speaking is like the thing that is your voice. Like what's the thing that sort of makes you you? So I think if you can think about developing tells, you know, those are the things that, that will resonate with the audience that most connects with your work. And those are the things that I think will, will signal to an audience that, oh, you know, this is a Melanie piece or this is an Anne piece or whatever the case may be. And so that's how I think about voice. I think of it as just something that is a way that you express something that is uniquely yours. I was just going to say, the reason I like tells is because sometimes I feel like voice sounds so high-minded. <laughs> you know what I mean? True. So I like to bring it right into, let's bring it right into Vegas. You know what I mean? <laughs> Let's just like knock down that notion of voice from something lofty into something super practical. 
It's true because I actually think in writing and in speaking, it's easy from the outside to kind of put things up on a pedestal and think, who am I to be up on stage? Who am I to be writing? You know, this is not, it's not attainable. It feels like this far off, polished, high-minded thing. And I think that's one of the things I like so much about Everybody Writes is you kind of brought it down to reality. So like, you write emails, you write text messages, you are a writer, you know, embrace mm-hmm. it and, and jump in with both feet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't like the idea of writing as something that only a few special people can do, (laughs) that only a few of us are gifted with, because I don't think that that's true at all. I think it's just the best writing is great communicating. It's all about the audience. It's all about a person being very aware of not just what they're saying, but how they're saying it in a way that's actually going to inspire or connect with or somehow resonate with the audience. Like, that's it. People obsess about things like grammar and about form. And it's like, it's not about that. It's really just about getting your message across in a way that's compelling to the people you're trying to connect with. And it's funny because it's, it's equally true for writing and for speaking, right? Yeah, and exactly. It comes yeah. down to the del- delivery of the message and the impact that you have. Yeah, you could swap out the word speaking for writing. I actually have a really good friend who's an art director and she says the same thing about art directing, you know, about graphics, graphic design, that she says it's the same thing. You know, you know, writing by committee is horrible. Speaking by committee is a terrible thing. And, you know, designing is by committee is awful too. So it's, it's, I think it's any of those sort of pursuits where it has to do with not just your, your not just personal What's the word? Not, not just personal. You're trying to say something. Listen to me. I'm completely inarticulate right now. Not just when you're trying to get a message across, but also when you really need it to, to resonate in a way. Right. Um, so I think that's really wh- why all those things are, are kind of linked because it is very, it's a very personal activity, but yet it's not about you. Right. You know what I mean? It's about the audience. So Yeah. It's so many times. I, I know that the folks who are regular listeners will hear me say it's, it's about showing up in service of your audience. That's, yes. that's kind of my thing. Yeah. I'm glad we're on the same page. (laughs) Yeah, because there's nothing worse than a self-indulgent speaker, right? We've all seen Uh them, and there's nothing worse than a self-indulgent writer. They're just boring to read. They're bore-ish, too. It's funny, because I I make this analogy when I'm talking about content strategy, is if you show up and you're only giving heavily branded content that's truly in service of yourself and not your audience, you're like that guy at the bar or at the party who only talks about himself, and nobody likes to stand there and talk to that guy, right? Like this is not for you. You're telling this story for yourself. Like it's not for me at all. There's no reason for me to be here. So I guess we've got to try to keep ourselves out of the center of of the writing and the speaking as well. Yeah. And that's hard because, you know, we love ourselves. We we want to put ourselves at the center. We love to talk about ourselves. I mean, let's just be, let's just be real. But, you know, I guess the, the audience should always enjoy it more than you do. Mm-hmm. That's true, whether you're writing or whether you're speaking. All right, let's face it, we can't all be good at everything. Yes, I'm talking about you. And speakers often have the tendency to cast a really wide net. But the truth is, it's more important to focus on who you're serving and the problem that you're solving. So for Lesson 13, Chris Ducker is here to share why you need to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. So I know a lot of people reach out to us and say, hey, I'm super interested in speaking. I've done a handful of speaking gigs before. I'd love to get paid for this. And I'm just having a difficult time figuring out, A, who I want to be speaking to of all the different options that are out there on the buffet, but B, also figuring out what's the problem that ultimately I can solve for them. Or I know what the problem is that I, I want to, I can solve for people or know what I want to speak on. And I feel like it's for anybody and everybody. And we just want, we want to cast the net as far and wide as possible. So for someone who's getting started as a UP, 
entrepreneur, as a personal brand, as a speaker, and just trying to figure out those two big pieces of who am I serving and what's the problem that I'm solving. What do you recommend in terms of how people go about figuring those two pieces out? Oh, I love this question. You're so good. You know, I mean, this, can we just have a quick aside real quick right now? How good is this guy? You know your job, don't you? What a great question. Okay, so here's the deal. I call this the Youpreneur Self-Awareness Test, okay? And what you do, anybody can do it. You get a piece of paper, you draw a line down the middle, and on one side, you write down what I call the flatter yourself list, okay? This is all the stuff that you know you are magnifico at. Like, no one can beat you at this stuff. You're 100% confident that you can handle whatever it is you're putting on that left side of the piece of paper. Funnily enough, most speakers or anyone else with any kind of confidence, quite frankly, have no problem putting that list together. It's as long as you're on by the time you're done, right? Now, on the other side of the arm or the other side of the page, rather, you could write it on the other side of the arm, I don't know. But on the other side of the page, you write down what I call it the let's be real list. Yeah. This one, not so easy for A-type entrepreneurs and personalities to write because we believe we're great at everything. We don't struggle with anything at all. That's actually the more important list because once you become self-aware on what you do very, very well and what you kind of aren't that great at, you can focus obviously on doing more of what you enjoy doing, what you're good at doing, and not do so much of the stuff that you struggle with. That self-awareness is huge. That's absolutely huge. Because again, it almost turns into the roadmap for you to follow as you continue on the journey. We all have doubts and at some point we're going to face the dreaded imposter syndrome. And so it's important to remember that you are not alone, nor are you the first to face your fears while building a speaking business. For lesson 14, Kendra Hall is going to share with us her journey through the trenches and how it was worth it and why the momentum matters in your speaking business. Yeah. So, all right. So then you decide, okay, I'm going to send 600 emails, which can be effective, but it can also be extremely monotonous, tedious, boring, repetitive. And you're, like you said, you get a very low response rate. You're just one, half the time you're wondering like, why the heck am I doing this? Like there's got, there's got to be a better way. So as you're going through that, are there times where you're thinking, what's the point of this? I should quit. This isn't working. I'm never going to make yeah. it. Are you, are you having those doubts and insecurities? Yeah, it was awful. I mean, I am not, I was having to literally input things into spreadsheets. I do not do spreadsheets. Well, I mean, I actually- You have such a, like, a disgust enjoy. in your voice. I know, I know. There's a time and a place for a spreadsheet, but it was, I cannot stress this enough, it was soul crushing. But even hours of data input and sending it out, one possible yes. And this is how you know that you're really meant for this. Because I want to be honest, speaking is not as glamorous as it looks yep. from the Facebook, Instagram images. I mean, if you think that the tedium of speaking stops after you send 600 emails, you've got another <laughs> thing coming. Right. Like it is, but that's the thing is, is it worth it? And so yeah. for me, that one email back about someone who could potentially be interested was worth the 300 non-responses or silly responses or delivery failure, that email isn't actually yeah. a real email. And that's how you know, because you have to, I think with anything, you have to be willing to go through the awfulness of it because the reward on the other side is worth it to you. 
Yeah. I had a, a buddy tell me early on in my career, he said, you, you have to fall in love with the process. Like mm-hmm. everyone loves the, like you said, getting up on stage and standing ovations or taking pictures or signing autographs and all those things are well and good. But like you said, that's a very, very, very small percentage of what actually happens. Like I, yeah. it seems like a lot of what we do is waiting. You're yes. waiting backstage. You're waiting on an, at an airport. You're waiting on a plane. You're waiting in a hotel. You're waiting at home. You're just, you're waiting. You're waiting and in line to check in at the hotel. Yeah, like, like you go to Vegas, there's an extra 40 minutes right. before you even, yeah. It's very boring. It's very non-glamorous. It's very non-sexy. And so you have to fall in love with the process of like, this is what I'm signing up for. The part that nobody sees, the part that nobody wants to do, the part that makes a difference, but it's just like, it's work. It's really, really difficult. And a lot of people just aren't willing to do that. So yeah, the 600 emails was miserable. And even when I say like, maybe I got five to 10, I don't even think I got 10 from those actual emails. But what I did get, I don't know where else this is as applicable, but there's that snowball effect with speaking. And the thing that I kept saying in those early days was the more I speak, the more I speak. Yep. So the only way to, I mean, to get started, yes, that first time I had to send those emails, but then after that, it was saying yes, it was speaking more because I was getting better at speaking. I had more people in my audience and more people in my audience meant more opportunities to maybe speak again. And so that was, yeah, maybe it was only five responses, but I'll tell you, one of them was for this women's group. So I sent an email, it was for a women's group in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Now keep in mind, I lived in Phoenix. So the plane ticket round trip alone, I think was like $700 and they had $500. So I went, I lost money on the deal and there were 10 women (laughs) in that audience, 10. So I flew across the country, lost money and spoke for 10 people. Now keep in mind, one of them, worked for actually the convention and visitors bureau of Scranton. And she was in charge of the annual women's event that they have each year. And so she hired me to come back to Scranton to speak for an audience of 350 a couple months later. And then someone in that audience saw me and wanted me to come back and speak for their company event where they had the budget. And at that point, you know, my fee was at a, that was the first one where I was like, this is the big fee. Like this is the fee that the guy said, big fee, everything's relative. (laughs) People speak for this much. And that was the first one that that's what I got paid. So yes, I went back and forth from Scranton a lot, (laughs) but look at how that happens, right? Like you just, you just never know. So every possible one, yes, could be many, many yeses. Yeah. Speaking is very much a momentum business that like early on, you're you're trying to push a boulder uphill and you have Mm -hmm. to do something to get it in motion. But once you get it in motion, it's a little bit, it's, it's much easier for you today to get gigs than it was several years ago. When you're building a business, there can be a tendency to keep from elevating your position in an effort to get booked and paid to speak. And so Mike Kim is here to remind us for lesson 15 of the value in positioning yourself as the professional you are from the beginning. It's difficult, but so worth it in the end. All right, so we've got personal story, we've got platform, what's number three? Positioning. This is so important. You and I both know this from a marketing standpoint. Positioning, I love the story that uh, our friend Ken Davis shared once um, when he first started speaking 
It was kind of a, a small event and some business guys walked up to him and said, I'd love to have you speak to our company. What's your fee? And he said something like $3,000 or something real paltry. And, and the guy said to him, oh, 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 I'm sorry. We only hire professionals. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all positioning, right? It's not just about how much money you charge. It's about who you want to speak to. So sure. you know, if this lady, for example, wants to speak to a corporate audience, but everything on her platform is her in PJs and she's not cleaned up and she, you know, her, right. her, her fonts are like comic sans and she has like unicorns on her website. Like there's a disconnect there. Yeah. I often say that there's a big difference between Walmart and Louis Vuitton. Mm -hmm. Both companies make a ton of money. They just make it in very different ways. Yeah. Walmart, mass audience, low prices, bargain basement shoppers make a ton of money through volume. Louis Vuitton exclusive. They don't even know what the word discount means. Right. The word sale is not in their vocabulary and they make their money through exclusive high-end goods to a very, very limited audience, limited customer base. My point is that if you're going to be a speaker, chances are you don't have a team of 50 people in your company unless you are John Maxwell. Sure. Right. Or unless you are one of these other big speakers, but even to that end, it's grown to that size because of the positioning. So I often tell speakers, I'm like, position yourself towards the high end of the market so that you can get more per keynote so that you can sell more premium courses. Yeah. Because if you don't draw that line in the sand early, it's really hard to elevate your positioning later. That's one thing that I knew from my corporate days because yeah. I worked for a company where we, we really sold a premium product and every time they wanted to bargain basement or, or discount something, I was like, nope, it's more important not to give an inch on our positioning than it is to get the revenue and the quick hit of money that we would get, right? So when I started out, I was like, nope, this is how much it costs. I don't care if you hire me or not. This is how much it costs. And that season can be very, very sensitive for a lot of folks even listening in right now is if you're like kind of straddling the line between a day job and trying to trying to really grow this thing as a side hustle. I totally understand where you're coming from. And Grant, this is my mentality. My job allows me to say no to bargain basement offers, right? Gotcha. And so I just held fast. And the offers I did take, even if I wasn't paid, at least increased my positioning. I've mm -hmm. spoken at social media marketing world. They don't pay any of their speakers. But dude, I would say yes to that because it grows your positioning. Right. And so I just looked for opportunities like that podcast movement when I first started out was totally, they didn't pay any of the speakers. Right? right. I was like, yeah, I'll pay my own way. I'll speak for free there because the social media exposure will be really good for me and get right. me in, in front of a lot of eyeballs. So there, there's all of that, but the positioning is super important. Are you Louis Vuitton or are you Walmart? And you got to decide now. Now, as speakers, we want to keep our audience engaged, but how do we actually do that? What tools do we need to leverage as a speaker to do so? Here in Lesson 16, Mike Pacione is going to tell us why tension is a powerful tool and how to use it effectively. Yeah, this is the biggest one. This is uh, create tension and release it. This is every single story. Every single scene of a movie should either be creating tension or releasing it. That is also true in stories that you're telling. You yeah. can also think of this one as finding your inner comedian, because with that, I mean, if you think of it, you and I both love watching comedy. Comedy is creating enough tension that a punchline will release the tension. So when you are telling a story, the audience should have a feeling of, wait, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? That doesn't mean that they're, 
like nervous that Michael Myers is going to barge in and kill you. Right? Like that's not the right. type of tension necessarily. There should be this feeling of, whoa, wait, what next? What next? What next? The tricky balance here is it's really easy to make the tension go on too long. And there's not a prescribed no longer than 30 seconds, no longer than 45 seconds. But there should be tension that's caused and then releasing the tension. So what does it look like to build that tension? So if I have a story about, I'm trying to think of an example. All right, so I tell a story about taking my family to Disney World and the girls dressing up like little princesses and they are or walking around and, and by the, the, the point of the story, by the end of it is one of my girls thinks that she's been transformed into a princess. Um, <laughs> and so, so in something like that, or I don't know, maybe an example you've got that that's probably that you, you know, the details of better will be an example of like, here's how the tension is built. Yeah, totally. So your instinct is correct there that you, you actually want to work backwards from the punchline or from the release Yeah. to figure out what the tension is. So like, the Sir Ken Robinson talk is one that I've dissected a fair bit. Let me see if I can do this part. He's British, so it sounds better than when I'm doing it. But <laughs> he tells this one story. He's like, this little girl was in the drawing lesson. She was six. She was in the back drawing. And the teacher said this little girl hardly ever paid attention. And in this drawing lesson, okay, wait she a second, did. Wait a second. Yeah. All right. I haven't seen his talk in a while. It's been a minute. Yeah. And I think I know where the story's going. Yeah. Just again, speak, all that to say, like speaking to the power of story and remember how this plays out. Go ahead. I think I know, but I want to, I want to hear. Yeah. Okay. So he's like in this drawing lesson, she paid attention and the teacher was fascinated. So we're building tension, building tension. Why was the teacher fascinated? She went over and she said, what are you drawing? Wait, why is she asking what she's drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. Uh And the teacher said, now we're really building the tension, but nobody knows what God looks like. And now we're going to release the tension. And the girl said, they will in a minute. Yep. Boom. Tension, yeah. release. But like a lot of people would tell that story. Oh, you know, I heard this six-year-old and she was drawing a picture and she decided to draw a picture of God. Isn't that funny? Because nobody knows what God looks like. Right, right. It's already gone. Yeah. So, okay. So like in that case, that's a quick story he tells. It takes, you know, 15, 20 seconds to tell perhaps. Yeah. But if we take like, let's go back to the example of like a comedian who does like a, a 10 minute story that maybe takes some rabbit trails in there. So is it just a matter of, you're not telling a, a nine minute, 30 second story only to release the tension right at the end. Right. It's yeah. kind of build, release, build, release, build, build just release. wash, yeah. winch, re- repeat over and over yep. and over. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. It should feel like you're going left, you're going right, you're going left, you're going right, you're going left, you're going right. And it's not necessarily, again, don't get out the stopwatch, 30 seconds left, 30 seconds right. But it needs to not be nine minutes of build up for 10 seconds of payoff. So one of the things that, that we talk with speakers about a lot of times is when you're working on a, a talk, a concept, a story, an idea, or anything, it's all kind of an educated guess until you get in front of an audience. Yeah. I think this works. I think this is funny. I think this will resonate. I think this will make sense, but I don't really know until I get in front of an audience. So it's one thing to be staring at a screen, typing out words and thinking through a story of what the tension release, tension release yeah. looks like. It's another thing when you're in front of a live audience. So is there any way to determine while you're working on this is like, I think this, I built enough tension to make this work, but I don't know until I get in front of that audience. Is there any way to, to set yourself up for success in that way? Yeah. I mean, the more you do it, the better you'll get at that, but that's, yeah. that's not that helpful full an answer. The, the biggest tip I would give you there is do it out loud instead of writing it or sorry, you can write it, but do it out loud too. When you do it out loud, that's when you'll start being like, Oh, this goes on for a while. Doesn't it? Oh, I yeah. can cut this detail. I can cut that detail. I yeah. can cut that detail. 
It could also be something that seems like you could just even run by, uh, you know, spouse, significant other, you know, friend or something of telling the story that way. I've heard some speakers say they'll be working on a story, working on an idea, and maybe they don't feel like it's quite ready for them to deliver on stage. But what they will do is they're catching up with a friend or they're at some yeah. networking thing or they're, you know, just got introduced to someone and they'll look for ways to just kind of insert it. May not be, I'm not going to tell them now the whole 10 minute story, but I've got this one minute segment. I'm just going to, I'm not going to kind of float out there. Yeah, it's the same yeah. type of way I'd tell it from stage, but I'm just going to verbalize it and see if then just kind of watch people's reaction. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And that actually makes me think, so I get nervous when people tell me stories at cocktail parties and stuff. I have trouble paying attention and I get nervous that they've got a, what they think is a really funny punchline and I'm not going to get it. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the things I've noticed is I'll do a lot of, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think if you get to my second, uh-huh, <laughs> and we're not at the punchline yet, that, that story needs to be shorter. <laughs> <laughs> or streamlined. What should you be looking for in those situations? So you've, uh, you have the the uh-huh from from someone perhaps yeah but is there any is like is there any way to just even just kind of reading body language of like oh this is working or like eh, i'm self-aware enough to realize this isn't working yeah i think someone smiling back at you is listen it's hard to read a good smile versus a fake smile but someone right. smiling at you is is good but if someone's like taking a drink looking around the room like those are things that are telling you mm, something about this isn't as good as it could be yeah the other thing, our buddy Josh Ship, you know, and I hadn't thought about this till now, but like Josh actually, before his TED Talks and such, he sends his stories out to friends and says, here's an anonymous survey. What worked? What didn't work? Yeah. What, what should I know about this that you wouldn't tell me in real life? Yeah. Josh takes his craft really seriously, but yeah, man, learn from that. Sometimes as speakers, whether you're just starting out or redefining your niche, we have the tendency to say yes to anything and everything that comes our way. Here in Lesson 17, Jane Atkinson reminds us that we have to learn the importance of saying no. Here's more from Jane on how to build your confidence so you can work less and earn more. I find that a lot of speakers are really, really good on the quote unquote art side. They're good speakers. They love what they do. They're passionate. They're great people. Mm -hmm. And they just suck on the business side. Like they have a hard time saying no. They tend to take on more than they should. They're not good at, at knowing when to say no to an event or when to take on something free because yeah. it makes sense in other ways. What yeah. advice do you give to, to those speakers? Well, I think that you build confidence as you go. And sometimes, I mean, that's what keeps me employed is that I am able to give people the confidence that there will be more business after this business. Right. When the, and what I actually find is one of the major problems. So we have a group called the Inner Circle Mastermind. And that mid-level speaker is so busy that they don't get time to really stop and work on their business, which means that they are going to be busy, busy, busy for years to come, not at the higher fees. What we want to do is reduce the number of gigs and raise the fees right. so that you're working less but earning more. And it really is kind of this, and, and this is a good segue for us to talk about running a business that's fear-based. First of all, it is a business. Yep. Yep. That is for sure. But one of my philosophies, and I believe it was Peter Legg, who's a multimillionaire, told me this, that the decisions based in fear are typically wrong. And when you don't take a gig 
or when you don't want to say no to taking a gig that you really shouldn't be taking, it's often based on fear that there won't be another one. Like all actors are fearful that this will be their last job always, right? And so I think that not running your business on fear base and really looking out and taking that time to really strategize where you're going and making sure that you have the confidence to know the value that you're bringing to the table to be able to stand tall in your fees and be able to say no when it's not a good fit or they're not offering you up your full fee. That is the goal. And that is when you're actually running your business like a business. All right, let's be honest for a second. Cold calls are probably not anyone's favorite part of building a speaking business, but you know what? They can actually be really, really effective and can make a huge difference when done the right way. For Lesson 18, Joe Hirsch is unpacking why you must be persistent and methodical in your cold outreach. So uh, we've kind of touched on the the cold calling aspect for a little bit now. So let's talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned, uh, you know, a time or two where you've used that for some speaking engagements. Are there other times where like you've used cold calling just to get your foot in the door with where, again, you may have been, you know, a relative unknown in that that space or in that market? Yeah, it became kind of clear to me once I started doing some speaking that event planners really like thought leaders. (laughs) So... I didn't have a lot of thought leadership outside of my own educational or training background to speak of. So one day I'm reading an article on Inc. because I just, I like to read that stuff. And it occurred to me, you know what? I might be able to add some value here. So I literally stopped mid-sentence as that thought entered my head and reached out to the author of the article that I was reading at that moment, who I knew a little bit, not very well, and said, hey man, can I, um, you know, can you put me in touch with your editor? I think I can add some value here. And one thing led to another. And after being persistent, but also really methodical, I now have a column at Inc. I write weekly there on collaboration and high performance feedback. And it's cool because I think that's another example where if you believe in your message and you have something of value to share, there really is no limit on what we can do if we're motivated to serve and we have something to share. Right. So cold calling is, it sounds like it's been very, very, you know, powerful and effective for you in terms of getting your foot in the door with a lot of these different opportunities, whether that's, you know, the column of ink or just speaking opportunities. Cold calling, obviously for most people is extremely, you know, nerve wracking and intimidating and scary. So can you kind of talk us through like what, uh, how, is this something that like you still struggle with or have fears about, or how have you kind of overcome the, I guess the the stigma and then the the difficulty of cold calling? I think if you think about cold calling as a science and as a process, it's not as scary. Okay. It's scary to a lot of us only because we, we think of it as, I guess, putting ourselves in a very vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. And that fear of rejection and that fear of what others think of us and what they'll have to say about our ideas uh, holds a lot of us back. Again, and I said it a few times, but I really think this is so important, especially for some of the newer speakers who are out there. You really have to believe in what you're selling because people can sniff out fakes. I mean, you really have to be authentic and guided by deep, deep belief in what you're selling and and how you want to serve. Because if you do that, you don't feel so scared about the rejection. That inevitably happens, and we all face rejection in this business. Even experienced speakers are still getting rejected. Sure. So it's having that like inner strength and that belief in what you are, who you are, and the message you're sharing that will guide you through. But then there's kind of a science to it as I kind of look through like, Okay, so like, what are the principles of effective cold calling? And 
And I came up with four big rules. So maybe we can talk about that. Share yeah, with your audience. Yeah, I want to hear it. Four rules, go. Okay, so number one, and this is the big misnomer of cold calling, is that you have to go in hot. If, you, if you're going in cold <laughs> to a cold call, uh -huh. you will probably not be very successful. When I say go in hot, I'm talking about three things, three R's, research, relevance, and relatability. Number one, with research, you have to really do your homework. You talk about this all the time, Grant. And you have to ask yourself, okay, is the, is the person I'm reaching out to or the opportunity I'm looking to seize, is that a good fit for me? Mm -hmm. I speak about leadership and communication. So writing for Good Housekeeping or People Magazine is probably not a good market for me. It's not going to fit my needs. Right. So I never reached out to those guys because I'd probably get rejected. But I thought Inc. is a good fit because I'm kind of working in the same space as those guys. I'm entrepreneurial. I'm starting my own business. I know what it's like to juggle full-time work with the demands of starting your own gig and, and hustling. And that's a place where I feel like I can be part of the conversation and add value to. Right. So research it. Find that, find that niche. And this applies for speaking as well. If you're reaching out to a particular organization, particular uh, association, even a brand or a particular organization, you want to really make sure that your message is aligned. Once I started getting some spin in the HR space, I had no problem reaching out to the biggest HR conference in the country and landing a spot there. I mean, I had to, I had to have some bona fides behind me, which came over time. But I felt that I can be part of that conversation because of some of the things I've done and people I've served. So right. <clears throat> number one, research. Two, relevance. Why are you a good fit for this? Right. You know, what is it about your experiences, your expertise that is going to add value? And if you're asking for an opportunity that is as much about you, you as them, so, you know, being a columnist at Inc., giving a TEDx talk, landing with a bureau, you know, which can provide some really nice opportunities for speakers, especially as they're starting off. You have to ask, why is this a good fit? Why me and why not someone else? And you have to find those points of connection, which gets us to the third R, which is let me Let me jump in for a second. I'm, I'm curious yeah. on that second one. So like, how did you find the way to kind of I don't know, at the same time, like differentiate, but also endear yourself to them and make yourself more relevant. Because, you know, I think that, that brings up a great, great question that you, you raised there of why you, you know, if, uh, there's plenty of speakers who speak on the topic of, or speak to HR professionals. So how, I think a lot of speakers would find this kind of dichotomy between like, I'm trying to promote myself, but at the same time, I'm, I'm also like, there may be times where I'm second guessing what I'm doing. Yeah. Like, how do you find some of that confidence to say, listen, I'm a great fit for your event and here's why. I think the key to being a really good speaker is standing out. Our good friend, Connie Podesta, who I've had the chance to get to know really well recently, love her stuff and she's one of the best of the best. Connie always talks about how you stand out on stage. And part of that, I think, is finding connection points, which is that third R, relatability. Mm -hmm. and how, how you can connect to that decision maker on the other side. When it was the chief people officer at Deloitte, through my research, I found out that his mother was a teacher. And so that's kind of an uncommon commonality, as, as Adam Grant says. And that's, by the way, another example of cold calling. When I needed to get blurbs for my book, I didn't know how to get endorsements. My publisher said, go out and get some endorsements. And I'm like, 
I guess my mother would write something for me, you know, she liked it, but I didn't know how to talk to these people. So again, there too, finding those uncommon commonalities, Adam Grant, blurb for the book, Marshall Goldsmith, who's the world's leading executive coach, blurb for the book and wrote the forward. These are great people who, again, are, are very generous with their time, but I think are looking for the right projects to support. And if you can find a way to make them see the value in your project, but also in you because of the connections that you have to their work and the influence that they have had on you in your own work, right. they're much more likely to say yes. So that's the relatability. These uncommon commonalities, things that make us stand out and you know stick in these people's minds. Maybe you've wondered before if you really have what it takes to be a speaker. I know I have a question that about myself before. You oftentimes may wonder, are the successful ones just born with the it factor? And so here in lesson 19, Ty Bennett is going to remind us that while we all have natural skill sets, being good at speaking takes hard work and not just talent. Do you think that uh, not just humor, but um, as we speak about ability in general, do you think that being funny and being a good speaker is a skill that can be taught and can be learned? Or yeah. is it just kind of like, that person's just good and I'm not, you know, or, or that person's just naturally funny or I'm not like, how do you view that? I think we all have our natural skill sets that are, you know, you might be a little bit more naturally inclined towards speaking and feeling comfortable with it. The words come to you more naturally or humor as a, as a pretty simple skill set for you. But I have watched, and I can just speak for myself. I've, I've watched this with other people, but for me in seven years where I thought, because I did a ton of speaking and training for our team internally before I decided to step out on the stage, you know, and try and speak to other companies. I probably had as much stage time as I ever had even now, you know, yeah. speaking. So I felt like I was good, mm -hmm. but I've watched myself get better and better. And what I could base that on is every six months or a year when I do a new speaker video and I go back and watch the old one, I'm embarrassed by it. Like I watch it and I'm like, oh my gosh, so this we sold this to people, you know, <laughs> like people paid for this. I mean, the video I used to get started seven years ago, I have tried to like get it off right. the internet. I hope it doesn't exist anywhere that because you do, you get better. And so I've watched people really work on it and get better and better and better. And in those skill sets, particularly, um, it takes work just like anything else. I think it's a skill set you can be taught and some people will get there faster because they have a little bit more natural ability there. But yeah, I, I think that anybody who comes into speaking needs to know that this is a craft you're going to continue to work on. And as your ability grows, you're going to get hired more often. You're going to get, you know, referred more often. Gigs are going to turn it. You're going to have that snowball effect that starts to take place. And we can't ever underestimate the fact that ability is a huge piece of it the best way to sell yourself is to be really good on stage. And one thing you kind of touched on there is that at this stage in your career, you've given, I mean, literally, you know, hundreds, thousands of presentations. And so someone may see you today and be like, wow, you know, Ty's just good. You know, he's just good. But they don't see the hundreds of times that you told that story or the hundreds of times that yeah. you delivered that punchline and the times that it just didn't work. It, nobody laughed. It wasn't funny. And you work on it and you go over it and you hone it and you dial it in or the times that you spend writing and rewriting and rewriting the joke or the story or the talk or the times that you are pacing back and forth in the hotel room, going over the talk time and time or backstage, just going over and over and over. And just people just assume like, ah, oh, they're just a great speaker. They just get up and wing it. That just doesn't happen. There's so no. much work 
work that goes into it that it's not just a natural ability. And well, although you said some people may have a little bit of that, but at the same time, it's it, the reason that they're successful and the reason that they're a great speaker or reason that they're funny is because they've been busting their butt and you just didn't see it. Yeah, a buddy of mine, Vin Jing, is a great speaker. Mm-hmm. He always shares this quote by Penn of Penn and Teller that magic is just somebody who spends way too much time on uh, on something that most people think is absurd, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you just become maniacal, obsessed with it, and and it's true. It just it's something that you continue to work on and just get better. And the thing that always I love is when somebody sees me a year or two later, you know, if I go back to a client or something, if I get comments where it's like, you've always been good, but man, you are so much better in this area or like, and they've noticed some of those changes. Like, I remember you being really good, but you were never that funny before, like your storytelling, whatever it is. Right. And, and so, yeah, I, for me, it's just a constant pursuit. And I always look at it for me. I've, since I've been speaking professionally, I was kind of trying to look at that group of speakers in my fee range in my, mm-hmm. in the same category. And you start to see some of these, like, for example, with bureaus, you start to notice who you're put up against, right? Mm-hmm. They recommend three of you and, and some of the same names keep popping up over and over. So you're kind of lumped in from a meeting planner perspective of you and these other people seem to fit, right? So I start to really pay attention to them and watch them and and try and gauge myself against them, not just not for a competition sake, but just to go, okay, if they're getting 15,000 for a speech, am I that good? Do I bring that much to the table and, and just try and keep bettering myself. And, and for me, one of the bigger pieces, and I think this is good advice for every speaker is to really seek out those that are that next level or above for you and watch them, go watch their videos, go check out their sites, you know, see their marketing materials. And, it becomes pretty obvious for the most part. None of them really anymore are like shocking, like how are this doesn't add up. Like right. it adds up, right? right? I mean, you can see why they're getting the fees they're getting. Right. For our 20th lesson and the final one for this episode, we're gonna be talking about the importance of covering your bases. Now, what exactly does that mean? Bill Jones is here to break it down for us with a reminder that you have to stay focused on what matters even as you grow. I'm curious then when you're in the thick of that, because it sounds like you have always had your hand in a lot of different things. So it's never just been head down, focus on speaking, and that's it. So there's again, there's a lot of of speakers and people that may be listening to this that are in a similar spot going, you know what, I'm interested in speaking. I'm also interested in hosting my own seminars or events or workshops. I'm also interested in training and consulting and coaching and doing a book and having a subscription service and having an app and having all these things. And the reality is you can't do them all today. You know, something's going to come first, something's going to come last. So it sounds like you have very systematic, maybe systematically or just kind of like it randomly happened. You have built so many of those multiple streams of income into your business. So what does that kind of evolution look like? Ron, if think about this. If, if I gave a child a cupcake, what's the only part of the cupcake they'd like to eat? I want the frosting. That's the good part. Yeah, just the frosting, maybe the sprinkles, maybe some further little fun stuff on top. But no child wants the base of the cupcake. In fact, they'll go through multiple lots of frosting without having any of the delicious sponge that sits underneath. And the majority of speakers are the exact same way. What happens is they want to run around getting nothing but the good stuff. What I learned from a real estate of early days is that I needed to build the base of my cupcake and continue to take this same principle today. In my early days, the base of that cupcake was £3,000 per month. That's what allowed me to be able to pay my bills. It's what allowed me to be able to act with posture Mm -hmm. in the speaking space with the gravitas because, um, well, quite simply, I knew my bills were paid. 
Mm-hmm. That looked like a real simple thing for me in the early days. It was a retained consulting client and a handful of ongoing one-to-one coaching clients. And I didn't mm-hmm. love that work. But it allowed me to be able to have the freedoms to go out and operate in the speaking space without it needing to pay my next meal ticket. And it meant that when I secured a fee that was £1,000, £2,000, £3,000, it felt like it was awesome. felt like good money because it wasn't going on the other stuff. It tasted like frosting. And the same thing is true to me today. I try not to start a year without knowing my overhead is covered. So we're recording this right now in 2017. I'm already going into 2018 now knowing the base of my cupcake is covered. For the last few years, what I've always had is a retained speaking contract with a larger client that wants me to do multiple events for them. So I've got a 20 gig event that is already lined up for 2018. Mm -hmm. Now, does it pay me full fee? No. Does it pay me good fee? Hell yeah. Am I happy with it? Does the client love me? Do I need to do any more prep for any of these events? No, I've done it once. I can repeat it forever. Mm -hmm. I now know more about my client's business in this area than they do themselves. And I've almost guaranteed myself this gig as long as I want to keep it. Yeah. How do I structure that gig? Well, I get them to pay me a lump sum money up front when we sign it every year. So I get this nice little tickle of cash every January. And then it carves down as 12 equal monthly monthly payments mm-hmm. over that next period of time. And it lands for me on the same day every month. So it's not a job that I have, but it gives me that job-based income security that allows me to then operate on the fun stuff and play around with things and make some mistakes. Right, right. So do you feel like that you are still able to focus on some of those the foundation pieces of the cupcake that allows you to then play with the frosting or because you get, because you have so many irons in the fire i think it's difficult for a lot of not just speakers but just entrepreneurs in general that there's always going to be some type of of new project or interest or thing that we'd like to pursue so not only like making sure that we we deliver on the base of the cupcake but also like having the bandwidth to play with the frosting or some of those other things that we may be intrigued yeah. by You can only be building one thing at a time. So I have huge foresight towards that base of the cupcake. I've just told you right now I'm taking care of for 2018. Yeah. So you have to put that top of priority. And that's like, well, you would always take the priority of knowing that you've got a roof over your family's head. I view the base of my cupcake in that same way and want to see 12 months ahead of time if possible. Yeah. That allows me now the focus to give all of my drive and direction towards the frosting and the sprinkles part of my business, which is the keynoting side of my business and the huge fun I'm having through the book right now. And you can't, well, I can't fathom to exist in any other way because I'd be too worried. I'd be too desperate when an opportunity came that I wouldn't play with the right level of posture when it came to negotiating over fee. I'd feel like if I'm ever playing like I need the work as opposed to I want the work, it's going to affect me in a way that's going to negatively sabotage my business. Without me putting that work into the early part of my cupcake and doing that every year, yeah, it would be a challenge out there. Yeah. I got to be honest, and I'm not the only one, I'm guessing, but I want a cupcake right now. I'm, I'm suddenly hungry for a cupcake yeah, yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. What, what are you feeling like? Tell me what type of cupcakes you got, you know, you're thinking. Are we red velvet? Are we chocolate chip? Where are we all going? All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> There's someone listening right now that's going, yes, yes, I was thinking the same thing. All right, there you have it. 10 more lessons from the 40 speaking lessons from 400 episodes series. I hope you enjoyed this rewind from some of our guests. Don't forget to head over to thespeakerlab.com slash free book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash free book. Enter your info to get a free copy of my book, The Successful Speaker. We're giving away 40 copies for this 40 lesson series. So don't wait. Go to thespeakerlab.com slash free book and get your copy now.